All right, so we are in Revelation chapter 20. It is going to take us a while to get through this because there are numbers of different things that I'm going to have to go back and build on uh, because to help understand all that's going on. And so tonight we'll look at uh, several things. The next week I've got uh, two things specifically that we're going to be looking at. That is the resurrections that are mentioned in the Bible. There are two general resurrections and uh, there are two judgments that are mentioned. So we'll be looking at resurrections and judgments next week and then we'll finish up um, with the judgment of the dead and um, then we'll be ready for chapter 21, new heaven and a new earth. So that's kind of our progress where we're headed. And uh, so let's look here. Revelation chapter 20. Now I'm starting in verse 11. Um, as we go through this, we'll go back and pick up some other passages that were earlier in the chapter. But uh, we'll start in verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his, pre from his presence, earth and sky, or heaven, fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were there, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, that's not necessarily a happy passage, but there are some great things here that we'll be looking at. This is mostly regarding the judgment of the dead, but there are some things, as I said, that we need to, uh, to back up so that we fully understand who's being judged, what the timing of this is. So uh, as we have moved through the different stages of Revelation, uh, we saw the seals and then the trumpets and then the vials poured out then the destruction of Babylon, and then the preparation uh, for the second coming, when the Lord came, then set up the kingdom uh, of, the, of the Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, the millennium, thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, there was rebellion. We talked about that last week, and Satan led this rebellion against the Lord, and uh, trying to bring forth some ultimate defeat, uh, but it was, it was over before it was started. And uh, so the power of God came out, consumed all of those who had come against the Lord, so that at the end of that period of time, there is now this judgment that is set up, and that is where we are uh, looking tonight. So, this is uh, what is referred to as the judgment 
the great judgment, the great white throne judgment. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that we as believers will not be subject to this judgment. Um, whether we will be there to observe it, I believe we will. We'll talk a little bit about that in our lesson tonight. But we will not be subject to this judgment. We have faced a different judgment, and that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about the two different judgments, judgment of the believers for rewards and the judgment of the dead or the unbelievers, uh, which none of them pass. So uh, let's look here. Uh, the first thing we see is the, uh, in, in, and it's meant to be this way, an awesome appearance. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on that throne. And the earth and the sky, or in Greek, the heavens, the earth and the heavens were gone, and no place was found for them. What an awesome scene. This is, this is something so overwhelmingly different that it would be hard to really describe it in our uh, circumstance. We cannot imagine nothing but a great throne standing there. No earth, no sky, no stars, no universe, all of it gone. Nothing but a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And then the dead are called up. Now that's not us. Where are we? Well, again, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So this is, you know, I, I, I've told you before, uh, and it's not something that is for anybody else. This is something for me. I have reserved one word for God and for the things that God does, and that is the word awesome. And I, in my own vocabulary, I don't use that for anything other than that. A word that just is for him. And this is awesome. Now, awesome comes, of course, from the word awe, which can be translated as fear. Is this fearful? Yes and no. It's overwhelming. So much so that I believe as believers, angels even, the living creatures are in awe of what they're seeing. It's not like this has been reserved in the background, you know, like off stage somewhere, and, you know, they're going to move it in. I've never been to see Le Miserable as it's come here, or maybe another of the great plays. Um, they build things on this stage, and it's a big revolving thing, like a 
big record player. And some of you young people may not understand what a record player is. It's got a big platter that turns his disc. Anyway, but uh, yeah, lazy Susan. But um, and so parts of the parts of the stage are just off there, and as the things progress, curtain closes. This thing moves around, and it's a whole another set. And they didn't have to get everything off and try to put everything back on. It's already set there. Well, that's not what this is. It's not like this has been reserved back in a corner somewhere. Okay, bring out the great white throne. And so there's not some stage crew bringing this about. There's nothing but this white throne, the one who sits on it, and then the dead are called to stand before it. That's, and that's a mass, because this is all the dead from Adam till here. This is the dead of all time. And so the first thing that actually we see here is the end of measured time. This is it. The end of measured time. From this point on, it's eternity. And it's nothing but timelessness. So this is the end of any measured time. And with this appearance of this white throne, there is no sun, there's no moon, there are no stars. As I said, there's no earth, there's no sea, there's nothing but this throne. Is it suspended in the sky? Is it in darkness with the awesome presence of this white throne and the light that comes from the very presence of God? Or is it in a lighted white field and God is radiant above all of that? I, I don't know, I can't tell you, but I can tell you one thing, it's going to be overwhelming. And so that's the way all will be to those who worship him, those who love him, those who have become believers. It will be an overwhelming appearance, something that our hearts have yearned for, but yet in our own mind we can't even imagine it being. And of course, then we're going to come to chapter 21, and it's going to be even greater yet. But that's for later. I want you to look at this verse. I, I put it there in your notes. He said, I saw this great white throne. But then I put the, the passage from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 20. Habakkuk. 2.20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all the earth keep silence. Nothing. Now here's the amazing thing. We've seen scenes of saints in heaven since chapter 4. And what's accompanied those? In every scene of the heavenly throne, from the beginning of the book, we see the living creatures, the 24 elders, which represent the church. 
we've seen a host, innumerable number of angels of all different classes, powers. We've seen the martyrs brought before the throne. We've seen tribulation saints. We've seen Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation raised to stand there. And what are they all doing? Worshiping, singing, shouting, praising God, glorifying Him. Sounds, trumpets, sounds that come from the throne. We don't even know what that sound is. All of this going on, loud, overwhelming, like the sound of waterfalls, multiple waterfalls. Overwhelming worship, which we get to be a part of. But you notice, there's none of that here. Every time the throne is mentioned, every other place in the book of Revelation where the throne is mentioned and the scene of the throne is mentioned, there's something about the worship and the praise and the singing and what's going forth. Sometimes even the words that they're singing are listed there. Here there's nothing. Why? Habakkuk 2.20. Let all the earth keep silence. There is going to be a time in heaven where there will be nothing but awesome silence. Overwhelmed. So much so that we can't even speak. There's just nothing to come out except this glorious appearance of God upon his throne. I can't even do justice to describing it. Where are we? We're not, we're not there singing. I have to say that we are so overwhelmed with awe, that overwhelming just grab you from the insides Have you ever wept in joy? I mean, there's weeping that's tears, and, but there's a weeping that comes with joy. And it is hard to explain, but it does. I, I think this is going to be one of those scenes. What in the world? There's no pain, just this glorious presence of God. All standing silent as the high court of heaven is convened and God is on his throne now he's always been on his throne of course but it's always like he's been hidden there's always been like a cloud or smoke or the light so overwhelming that you couldn't see him John seems to know he's there and seated on the throne him who was seated on the throne. But there is a group of people that are there. We're not seen. 
the 24 elders are not seen, the angels are not seen, the living creatures are not seen, I believe we're there. I believe this will be the greatest spectator event <laughs> in all uh, time up to here. But the dead. And we're going to talk about more about this group of the dead. There's two resurrections. The resurrection to life, which we are a part of because we have already believed. Right? And then there's a resurrection unto death. Those are the two resurrections. And this will be the time when the dead are called before the throne. All of the dead from Adam. All of the dead who were not believers. All of the dead who have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, church age or the Messiah as their Redeemer, Old Testament age. All of those who have not looked for and longed for the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself. All of those who during the tribulation took the mark of the beast because they didn't want to worship the God of salvation. And they are standing there, and I see nothing but abject fear. Nothing. They are there. We're there in awe. They're there in awe. But it's a different awe. And this is the awe of absolute paralyzing fear. They stand before the throne, the sovereign God of the universe, whom they've refused to acknowledge all of their days, maybe even condemned, criticized, spoke against, persecuted others who did believe, went to war against all of them. They stand there. They have no advocate. No one to speak for them. They have no intercessor. They have no comforter. No savior. No hope. Nothing. And the God of grace, whom we know, the God of all grace, has no grace for them. The God of mercy, who has saved us because we opened our hearts to believe, right? He didn't save you without your participation. We opened our hearts to believe, and Paul said, but the mercy and the grace of God were abundant toward me. They find no mercy. There is no mercy in this throne. So who is this who sits on the throne? Well, in my study, I have to say, number one, it is the triune God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. Together. Because Jesus has spoken of the fact that 
he sat down in his father's throne. That's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is on the throne, and we are going to be on the throne with him, right? So this is a reference to uh, the presence there. John chapter 2, verse 22, and John 22, verse 3, refers to the throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God and of the Lamb. So this throne is there. Where is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible described earlier in chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit was like this emerald rainbow, this glorious light around the throne, which would be a representation of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is there, the Father is there, Jesus is there. As I put down here, they're co-equal. I, then I got to thinking, co, does that just mean two? Is it, or are they tri-equal? So, but go with me on this. They're co-equal. They're co-regent. I mean, they, they all reign in the same category. There's not a category of who's above who. No, they're co-regent, all on the same level of reigning. They're co-eternal. They've all been since the beginning. I know he's called the Son, but he's been since the beginning. Son is just a, a representative way of God referring to the second person. They're co-prescient, which means they all know everything. They all know everything. The Father doesn't have to explain things to the Spirit. Jesus doesn't have to explain things, you know, or learn things. No, they're all co-prescient. They all know everything. Maybe you know somebody like that. Who's... But anyway, all-knowing. They're co-redemptive. They're all involved in our redemption. Every one, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all participated in our redemption. The Father loved and sent His Son. The Son died and rose. The Spirit convicts and recreates us in His image. There's so many things. Study it out yourself. Add all the other things that the Father has done in bringing about redemption. The Son has done in bringing about redemption. The Spirit has done in bringing us redemption. They, they're all redemptive. They've all participated in this redemption that we enjoy. But the dead have refused. And it's important to understand that the dead are the ones who have refused. It's not that they didn't get chosen. It's they have refused. We'll back that up with some other passages as we go. Yet, though they all are there, the triune God upon the throne, the scripture also tells us that it is the Son who is going to be the one voicing the judgments. All right? He has given authority to the Son to pass judgment. Look at these verses just above middle of your page there. John chapter 5, verse 22. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And John 5, 20, 26. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So God gave him the authority. He's the Son of Man. He lived as a man. He took on flesh. He became obedient to his Father. He died and he is the one now who will sit there and issue the judgments, though it is he's sitting there in his father's throne, surrounded by, enveloped in the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, Jesus is the one, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 and 31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Who is the one who was raised from the dead? Jesus. He's the one that he has, God has appointed to be the judge of all mankind. And so these are passages that tell us that the judgment is issued from the Son, in a sense, from the throne, upon which the Father, Son, and Spirit are seated. What an incredible passage. Just, that's just a few verses. That's just a couple words of overwhelming reality that's going to happen now here's the next part middle of the page vanished because here's the other part of this not only is there this throne upon which the father son and the spirit are seated which becomes the focal point of everything because here's the thing there's nothing else to look at. What was that movie with the little dog? Is it squirrel? What was it? Up? Is that the name of that movie? Yeah. Where this little dog gets gets is always getting distracted, and every time he's trying to do something, he gets distracted by a squirrel running across the the yard or whatever. Squirrel. So anyway, you got to see the movie. Go watch it. It's good. But um, there's nothing to distract. There's nothing else to look at. This, to me, is one of the great wonders of Revelation. I mean, there are so many things in the book of Revelation that's like, okay, I read it. I've done my best to break it down, to analyze the verse, understand the Greek and the phrasings and the relationships to other verses and all of this I've done everything I can but I still sit back and say I gotta see it because till I see it all my words are just not gonna make sense <laughs> it's just and this is one of those it just is not going to make sense until we're there the earth and the heavens gone now I love creation my, one of my favorite things is photography, taking pictures, 
I love, you know, going out in the mountains or wherever. Three o'clock in the morning. Three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> go hike three miles to a waterfall. But you know what? That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. I've gotten up in the middle of the night to go take pictures of a blood moon or try to get pictures of the Milky Way. I've not been successful yet, but when I do, you'll know it. All right? I love all that, but there's going to be a time when that's all gone. Now, God's going to bring that all back in a different way. In the new heaven and the new earth, it's not just the new heaven that we're going to see. It's a new earth, but it's not this earth remade. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. The other, the other scenes in heaven, it was never said that you couldn't see anything else because of things were going on. I mean, you're, you're captivated by what's going on in the throne. Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, the other chapters. Yet there's also stuff going on on the earth, you know, or so it's like, what am I watching here? Can I, can I pause it for a minute, you know, slow it down? Can I rewind it, watch it again? I don't know. But in all the other places, there was, there's so much going on. Either in the earth or in heaven or in both. Here, there's nothing else going on because there is nothing else. The heaven and the earth, listen to this phrase, fled away. Now, I borrowed this phrase from a guy named Donald Barnhouse, and, and then I found him quoted in several other commentaries that I studied. So I don't know, maybe he was the originator of this phrase, but he called this the uncreation. God made this universe out of nothing in creation. We all believe that? Yeah. Now, I know in science, people say, well, you can't, you can't make something out of nothing. Talk to God about that. Oh, I'm sorry, you don't believe in God. You just use his dirt and you use his space and you use his chemicals to do all the things that you want to do, but he's the one that made them. All right, so... He made everything from nothing. Now he's going to take everything and make it nothing. Well, you can't destroy matter, science says. You can't, matter can't be destroyed. It just has to change its structure. It has to change the way it is because matter is made up of energy and energy goes on and on. And so it just, just no, it's going to vanish. Well, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, in the best words of Kenneth Hagin, hide and watch. Right? But please don't hide. You know, be on the observer side, not on the uh, subject side. Heaven and earth fled away and no place. It's not, it's not just, if he just said that they fled away would be one thing. But he follows it up with, and no place was found for them. In other words, you could search through the, quote, universe, but there's no universe. It's just emptiness. But you could search the emptiness and never find it because it doesn't exist. This is the 
uncreation. How many, how many are like, I don't see how that can be. But that's what it says. And it doesn't just say it here. Now, this, this uncreation is different than what some people think. Because, first of all, the earth was reshaped by the fall. It was one thing when God created it, right? But then it became something else after the fall. Progressively to deterioration. Right? And science is correct. All energy tends toward decay. Right? And so, yes, all of that, which means evolution can't work because that's reversing the laws of physics. But anyway, all, uh, it's all deteriorating, and it has been deteriorating for thousands and thousands of years since the creation. And then during the millennium, it was purged. Because of the effects of the fall, God had to remove all of the effects. And so through earthquake and through all manner of natural calamities and upheavals, God purged the earth of all of the taint of man's sin. So that in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, this earth was like back to paradise. All the animals were friendly. There was no death, no disease, no sickness, no prey on one another, no fear of earthquakes, no fear of volcanoes. None of those things that we think as natural disasters didn't happen. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that's going to come. People that die now and have an out-of-the-body experience, a heavenly experience, they're not seeing the new heaven and the new earth. You know why? They don't exist yet. God has not made them to appear. They're not there. They go to the heaven that is the boat of God right now. But there's coming a new heaven. And it's not just this earth remade. Why? Why? Because this earth is gone. That's why it's not, it's not going to be remade, because it's gone. The earth isn't going to be purified, renovated, renewed, reformed. Scripture doesn't allow that interpretation, though many people try to press it. And you'll read people or hear people say God is going to, going to change us you know, God uses for the new heaven, new earth, the same word he uses for our new creation. You're a new creation. A new creation. God didn't just remake my inner man. It was born of God, of incorruptible seed. It's born a new life that did not exist before. It's not just me remade. Now, I'm in the process of doing some renovation to this outward form here, right? And so we are in the process of 
recovery, remodeling, renewing, right? But your spirit man wasn't renewed. It was recreated in his image and likeness. But as for this earth, bottom of page two, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. They're not just going to be gone physically. They're going to be gone here. It's like, like, I remember the old days. (laughs) No, you won't remember. They won't be remembered or recalled. Some of us, you know, we've already started on that path. But anyway, (laughs) Matthew 24, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will what? Pass away. But my word shall not pass away. Look what he, he relates that to. God's words are eternal. They will never pass away. But this earth, the heavens, they will pass away and that is repeated in Luke and in Mark so you can do some research on that top of your next page Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 you Lord Hebrews 1 10 you Lord laid the foundations of the earth at the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will what's word they will perish but you remain They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God is going to remove them from his presence and from ours. Hebrews chapter 12, at the same time, at that time, Hebrews 12, 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. The removal of things that have been made. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. In that, he means remove all of those things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He's going to bring forth eternal works. And then Isaiah 34, verse 4. Isaiah 34, 4 says, All the host of heaven shall (laughs) rot away. Rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. They're gone. But it's Peter, in his second letter, that really does the best job of describing this event that's going to take place, the removing of the heavens and the earth. Peter doesn't just say they were gone. He says how they're gone. So let's read. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you're not going to know when it's coming. This is the day of the Lord. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. 
Then what comes after the second coming? The millennium. Peter just skips over that and goes immediately to the end of the millennium. And he says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's an interesting word. The heavens will pass away with a roar. They're not just going to be gone. It's going to be like a ripping. The word that's used for the roar there is, is a word that can be used for the sound of, of an arrow flying by you, of the sound of fire as it burns. Uh, the word is used in a numbers of different ways, but it's going to be ripped away. The best thing I could think of is like a giant piece of Velcro, and it's going to be ripped off. And how many, how many like that sound of Velcro being torn? How many don't? It almost like puts your teeth on edge. All right? And so I try to get my camera bag so that they don't have that Velcro thing ripping them open in a silent moment when everybody's, you know, there, you know, and I'm rip. Okay, anyway, got to move on. But the heavens will pass away. They're not just going to disappear. Oh, gee, they're here, they're gone. No, they're going to be ripped away, torn away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. It's going to be this destruction burned up to the place they are dissolved. And the word dissolved is used in different forms throughout the rest of this passage, which means they're just going to, in a sense, fall apart. It's just going to fall apart. Everything is going to fall apart. It's not instantly gone. It's dissolved, falling apart, ripping away. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So all the behind-the-scenes things, the things that are holding everything up, the structures that are behind, all of that will be gone. Verse 11, and since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he says it again, what sort of people ought we to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of our God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's going to be a massive destruction. And where are we going to be? Watching. This is, this is going to be something that we behold. Somewhere between the end of the millennium and the setting up of this great white throne is this massive destruction of the earth and the end result they're gone vanished not even to be remembered but there will be a process a roar burning dissolving falling apart interior supports destroyed so that the whole thing falls into nothingness Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Yay. So that is what we find here in the destruction of those things. 
that are coming. The great white throne is set up. The dead are there. But now I want to skip to to a part here, and then we'll come back and talk about the judgment of the dead in our next session. But I want to go to the book of life, and this is found in chapter 12, or verse 12. Revelation 20, verse 12, the last half says, And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. Well, in here it doesn't say the Lamb. Okay. All right. And that phrase is repeated. But, so here it's just called the book of life. Other places, two other places called the Lamb's book of life. Book of life, he was, uh, and he, that is the enemy. Um, Going back to Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So these, these statements about the book of life, and I want to talk about this. I talked about this in our Sunday school class, our legacy class on Sunday. But I want to discuss um, the book of life, and we'll just get started with this. We'll pick up, finish this in our session next week. This book of life. First thing I want to talk about is, is the names that are written in. In this, this is one of those um, illustration uses that God is is using to help us to see uh, what he's doing in a way that we don't normally see. So he calls it a book. I don't know how big this book would have to be, but it is a book. But when you go back to Israel, and the imagery here goes back to that which we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when a child was born, their names were written into a scroll. So at the birth of a child, the name is written. You give the child a name, and the name is written into a scroll. And it's kept, and people know that. And so they remember the names. People celebrate their names. They give children names because of a special reason, maybe something they want the child to attain to, maybe something that has been an experience in their own life. So they name the child, and the child's name is written into this book. But did you know that in Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham, no one's name was ever removed? There was no blotting out. No matter how much of the law you broke, even Israel, when they went into discipline and were sent into Babylon, God didn't remove their names because their names continued, and when they came back from Babylon, they all knew their lineage. How many have read the book of Numbers? And you get tired about the third chapter in? It's like, oh my God, if I could read these names one more time. And I look at the next, I'll just skip to the next chapter. Oh, it's names. Well, I'll skip a couple chapters. Oh, it's names. What is this? Who cares? What did you say? God cares. I know we, we skim over those. We make fun of the names. We try to say them. I was told in Bible college, said, just pretend like you know how to say it and say it. No one will know that you're wrong. They can't say it either. So, you know, you just, just jump out there, say the name, just move on. But 
To God, those names are important. We skip over them and so and so and so and so and whatever, whatever, whatever. No, God cares. That's why he wrote their name. And it was important to God so that you could trace your lineage and you knew who you were born from. And you knew where your line connected to Abraham. What a glorious thing. And this was the registry or the scroll of names. And they kept these in synagogues, in rabbinical houses, in the temple. They kept these names so that they could always know where they were. And even in the captivity, what did God call them? They were God's people. They're his beloved. What does he say in Isaiah 43? I have redeemed you. You are mine. God knows their names. We skip over them, but God knows them. And so he called them back from Babylon. Out of their rebellion, they were still his, still his own. Now, skip down to the Roman Empire. It wasn't that way. In the Roman Empire, if you were of the upper classes, the senatorial class, the nobility class, whatever, if you were in that upper echelon, yeah, there was a scroll, you had your name, it was written in a book somewhere, but if the emperor got mad at you, or your parents got mad at you, or the senate got mad at you, they'd go have your name blotted out of the book. So the Roman Empire, you could have your name blotted out. But if you were in one of the middle classes down to the slaves, your name wasn't recorded anywhere. Maybe in the household, they wrote you down, but that's because you were a possession. I have this many pieces of pottery. I have this many pieces of silver or brass. I have this much of grain. I have this many slaves. You're just a possession. But you weren't enrolled. Now, maybe you could do something great in in society and civil government and you would somehow maybe you'd get a name and they would bring you before the the town square or maybe even before the nation and the senate and give you a name and write your name down but then a new senator came along or a new emperor came along and he didn't like what you did and he didn't like the way people liked what you did and so he had your name removed and that was often done you could distinguish yourself in battle and, and get, a, get a name that meant something, but the next thing you know, you, you do something wrong or you fall out of favor with the emperor and you're fighting in the gladiatorial ring. Nobody cared. Your name is erased. So having your name erased was not an uncommon thing, except for the people of God. And they would find their names removed. The Apostle Paul, under Emperor Nero, this top of your fourth page, the Apostle Paul under Nero was stripped of his rights of citizenship. He's removed from the rolls. Because Nero deemed him an anarchist. That he was one who was um, creating sedition among the people with his message. And he had insulted the government, and he had insulted 
the religions of the day because he didn't believe in the gods. He was an atheist. Did you know that early Christians were the atheists? They didn't believe in the gods. Yay, how many atheists do we have in here? I don't believe in their gods. I believe in the God, right? So, Emperor Domitian himself, who is ruling during the time John is writing this book, was notorious for removing people's names. If he didn't like what you'd done, if he didn't like who you were, he would, he would have entire cities removed from the rolls. I don't like them, them anyway. They, they don't like me. Psh, they're gone off the roll. They're no longer a, a city of citizenship. He would remove them. He even had senators removed. The senators, by that time, really had very little power as Domitian had proclaimed himself a god. Um, but he would have senators removed from the rolls. Interesting point. I shared this with the class on Sunday. After his death, it was Domitian's name that was removed. You can go to city after city, especially the city of Ephesus, which is where he tried to establish himself and build. He built a huge um, temple to himself in Ephesus. But after his death, they chiseled over his name. They scratched it out. They changed the letters so that his name no longer appeared. Whose, whose name was blotted out? Domitian. Now, that's the foundation for these statements that are made. And let me just give you one passage, and then we'll close. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Seventy had gone out, seen miracles, seen people healed, lepers cleansed, lame walking, deaf hearing, even dead being raised, demons being cast out. And they came back rejoicing, and verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your, what? Names, Names are written in heaven. Written in heaven. When you got born again, when you professed faith in Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you professed faith in the Messiah, your name was written in, enrolled not in an earthly scroll, which can be burned up, which people can go and blot your name out. But this one is written where? Where's this book? In heaven. You don't have the authority to go there and remove anybody's name. It's written. The day that you believed, the day that you professed your name, was written in heaven. Look at Ephesians uh, chapter... Why didn't I put that here? Is it not here? Sorry. Ephesians chapter 1 should be there. It's not there. Oh, it's, it's another place down below. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12. That's where I want to start. It goes down below. I, I found it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and believed. You heard and believed. Isn't that beautiful? You heard and believed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So not only has your name been written in, it's been sealed. And we'll talk about that more next week. Amen.